0: Deborah, do you want to play our favorite game? Sure. Find, make, or mend. So have you found anything fabulous lately, made anything, or mended something to give it a little new life that you're really excited about? Kind of like all of the above at one time.
1: Um, <laughs> okay, so so I was recently asked to make some nineteen forties inspired cocktail hats, and so actually for uh, Goo Goo Dolls Christmas special oh. that I think just came out earlier in December. So I had two hats that I knew that I that would work. So what I did was I. I kind of took out parts of the details that I, that were already there, and I replaced them with like things that would sort of catch the light a little bit more on camera. Okay, they turned out really good, and I you could see them in the the Christmas special. It's a little um, they're kind of back. They're black hats, and so like they're. I wish they had a different background because mm. the background is black and the hats are black. But um, anyway, I can see them. I know they're mine, so like that uh, was exciting because that's really one of the reasons I moved to Los Angeles is to you know create more hats for. Film and television.
0: Oh, I love that. That's really exciting. Uh, and, Thanks. you know, where do we go to watch the
1: Christmas special? Okay, I don't know how long it's going to be up for, but I think you should be able to go to fantrax.com. Okay, They've got some
0: really great Christmas songs
1: and it kind of puts you in a cheery mood.
0: Nice. Okay. Well, what a topic to bring up because today on Very Vintage, we are going to be making you warm and fuzzy and talking about Christmas's past. I reached out to Deborah specifically to talk about Christmas because as someone who grew up Jewish, I don't know a lot about Christmas and I love Christmas trees. I love Christmas decorations. Just the whole season, it feels really special, especially when you're in a place like Chicago where normally it would snow. I don't think we're gonna have a white Christmas this year. And so I wanted to take a little time out of our busy holiday schedule to talk about all things very vintage Christmas. I'm Rachel. I'm Deborah. And this is Very Vintage. On this episode of Very Vintage, we are going to be talking about memories and stories from families and friends of Christmas's past and Christmas through the decades. So curl up with your favorite beverage, maybe a cider, eggnog, some hot cocoa. Uh, Deborah, have you seen those hot cocoa bombs? Do you know what I'm talking about? No. They're all over the internet. They're just, they're crazy. Um, So essentially it's like a bath bomb, you know, those things that you drop in the bath and they fizz and make colors and whatnot. Are, are you familiar with those? Yes. Okay. So someone, I don't know if, I haven't seen them before this year, has decided that now we need that for our hot chocolate. So you put this oversized chocolate thing, really thin shell, and it's filled with marshmallows and the powder. I don't know, people are making them in little molds. And then you pour hot milk over it. It breaks apart and then the uh, marshmallows floats the top and then you kind of stir it in. They're really neat looking. And apparently bakeries cannot keep them on the shelves. So you've seen this whole secondary market of people selling them on um, Marketplace, Craigslist, all that. So it's, it's kind of neat. That's fun.
1: At, at first, I was thinking you you throw it in the bathtub and you, you lay in a, a vat
0: of hot chocolate. That's a yeast infection waiting to happen. Stop May or may not keep that one in the podcast. Sorry, mom. Gross. Um, <laughs> at any rate, that sounds fun, though. So yeah, I would love to. You know, in in twenty, thirty, forty years, that that's going to look like a very vintage Christmas thing to uh, to the next generation. Are those those hot chocolate bombs? Yeah, sounds good though. Someone's going to write about that in a book somewhere. So today we are going to start our conversation in the nineteen twenties. Because I don't know a ton about Christmas, so I grew up Jewish – And so we didn't have a Christmas tree. We didn't do Christmas lights, none of that. Uh, You know, we did some decorations because my maternal grandparents celebrated Christmas. So we would always go to their house and they had a tree and they had, you know, the house done up. But by the time we arrived, because they lived in Michigan five hours away, that was already done so that we really I never really have had the experience of decorating a tree and pulling out all the stuff from the attic and, and doing that. Sure.
1: It just magically appeared for you.
0: Right. Like we showed up and grandma had already had everything like perfectly perfect. She was one of those ladies that the hair was on point, the makeup, the outfits, the heels, the all of it, including the home. Yeah, she was not going to let me get my grubby little fingers on, on her ornaments. I don't have a good frame of reference. And you and I started talking about Christmas and I felt like you had all these great stories. So what I had to do was go to the Internet. I tried to get my hands on a book that I found called A Very Vintage Christmas by a guy named Bob Richter. I thought, very vintage podcast, very vintage Christmas, perfect. Very on brand. Very on brand. Uh, But the hold list at the Chicago Public Library was too long. And I I still haven't been released from my hold on the book yet. And uh, I don't know if I shared with you about this, but I really made a conscious effort in 2020 not to buy very many things. And one thing that was on my no buy list was books. So I was not allowed to buy any books this year. (laughs) Just trying to reduce my overall stuff consumption. No, good for you. Thanks. So either I would borrow things or get them from the library and very vintage Christmas not available. So hopefully. Hopefully I get a chance to check it out. But I was able to get a hold of a book by a woman named Susan Wagner, and the book is called Have Yourself a Very Vintage Christmas. Apparently, that phrase very vintage and Christmas are popular together. <laughs> they go together. Loved this book for a few reasons. One, there's a lot of great history that I'll be, you know, sharing. And it also was full of instructional content so you can make your own vintage Christmas decor. Um, that's cool. Yeah, so Susan Wagner looked through lots of books and catalogs to uncover trends and and color theories and things from the past, but most of those ornaments were made of fabric or paper or, you know, Christmas ornaments are or thin glass, and a lot of them didn't age well or survive. So she didn't mm-hmm. want a bunch of busted up Christmas stuff, so she also set about how to make your own. And that's what I really liked about this book is that if I ever do want to go down the path of creating Christmas decorations, I can, but I don't really want to have to store a tree and store decorations. I like to save that room for Shoes and clothes, that's where my vintage interests lie. So yeah, well, you know, without further ado, we can kind of start things off in the 1920s. Okay, I'm ready. Let's do it. The 20s was really a decade of changes. We talked about this a lot in our turban episode. We've got cars getting more popular, clothes were really changing, and technology was changing a lot. But in the 1920s, Christmas really stayed a constant. And Susan Wagner says that a lot of that had to do with the United States co- kind of coming out of World War One, and people just wanting a return to something that felt comfortable. Mm-hmm. So you start to see a lot of paper bell ornaments and garlands. People were all about the bells. But weirdly, and this is something I didn't realize, is that in the 1920s, you didn't really see the classic mistletoe colors of red and green. It was pastels, dreamy, lavender, rose, light blues, cream colors. Uh, You did see a lot of red, but for some reason, green hadn't made its way into the Christmas decor. Interesting. Yeah. And even though you saw a lot of imagery that is is like Christmas, you know, the bells and the garland, you didn't really see poinsettias because there was an urban legend that a child had died by ingesting poinsettia, which now we know they're actually non-toxic to people. But back then, you know, you hear the one rumor and suddenly no more poinsettias in the houses. Right. So- in the in uh, have yourself a very vintage Christmas each section is on a decade and then at the end there are crafts and my favorite favorite craft of the 1920s that she mentions is uh, she gives you a guide on how to make a glitter garland Uh, if you only saw like one or two garlands your tree was severely underdressed and the reason why is that back then store-bought ornaments were quite pricey and so a family might only buy one or two ornaments at a time so it took a while for a family to really accumulate lots of cool stuff on the tree so they had to really supplement with with handmade add-ons and so if you get the book have yourself a very vintage Christmas, highly recommend looking up the glitter garland because it is awesome.
1: Now I'm curious, what do they make the garland out of?
0: Uh, She uses like styrofoam balls. I don't know what they used back in the 1920s, Probably just whatever was, was available. I feel like people were much craftier back then. For sure. As you go into the 1930s, at this point, you know, you had the roaring 20s, all that. um, But then you see the big crash, you know, the economic decline. And that's when companies and stores like Woolworths really get their time to shine. And so Woolworths, I always thought it was a department store, but it actually was a five-and-dime store. And that really helped families stay festive because they were able to continue supplementing with the homemade stuff.
1: You could think of Woolworths as sort of an early dollar store.
0: Oh, OK. Yeah, that makes sense. And and Woolworths will actually come up again a little later on. In the 1930s, you start to see dogs, imagery of dogs becoming really popular. So, uh, you know, you still see the bells and you still see certain like holly and things like that. But dogs became really important and not like beautiful greyhounds and all these very regal-looking dogs. In American Christmas decor, you see a lot of terriers and a lot of scrappy mutts, just because that's sort of how Americans saw themselves. They're kind of like this scrappy country. They're, you know, exuberant. They're still trying to really find the joy in Christmas, even though the 1930s were such a rough time in our country. Also, because of the Depression and really just searching and reaching for anything positive, that's when you start to see what we now know is the classic vibrant green and reds come in. Interesting. Yeah. So they really banished the pastel. They saw that as kind of dowdy, sad 1920s stuff. they're all about the green and red. Hmm.
1: I wonder what exa- what was the first thing that started that trend?
0: I don't know. I really feel like it's got to be the mistletoe thing is that there's so many or poinsettias like, you know, that Christmas red and green, like a lot of the yeah. plants associated. Uh,
1: like holly, like the red of a holly and the, the green of the greenery.
0: Yeah. And also... You know, I didn't look too much into like yuletide and winter solstice type stuff and focusing mainly Christmas on this episode. Mm-hmm. But I know that, that that's a really important thing in there are the the plants, the winter plants associated with this, this time of year. In the 1930s, that's also when handmade became even more important. So you had those homemade add-ons in the 1920s. But in the 1930s, just with the way things were going, people weren't going and buying ornaments that one to two ornaments per year. Instead, they were going to Woolworths and getting the supplies to make their own family ornaments. So that's when you see needlework, embroidery, quilting. So if you've ever seen quilted ornaments, of which I've seen a ton. In fact, Matt's mom, my boyfriend Matt's mom, makes these really cool orb-shaped quilt. It's like the classic quilt star, but they're in a, in a circle. They're really neat. She mm-hmm. makes beautiful ornaments. And you also, even though money was tight, if you had abundant... Access to electricity at your house, you were plugging in some Christmas lights. That is really where you see the indoor lights on the tree. And you see colorful lights, shaped lights, and mass-produced glass ornaments started up in 1937. So as we're kind of on the tail end of the, the 30s, that's when you start to see kind of more things that are less artisan-based and more mass-produced. That
1: surprised me. Like, the, it mm-hmm. just seems like those round shiny ornaments would have been around for all eternity but it's, it's so interesting to think that they're relatively new.
0: Yeah, maybe that has to do with you had artisans with glass blowing and things like that and then with technology changes through the 20s and then into the 30s that's when you start having those machined ornaments. Mass produced, sure. Mass produced, yeah. Uh, so the 1930s at the end of the day it's really all about those personal touches and I think that's why the author had you know said like I'd rather make some of my own than try to find potentially tattered old original stuff, because it also mm-hmm. is so unique and, and personal to your own style and, and family home. Completely. That reminds me, I,
1: I've i got um, five female cousins mm-hmm. in Chicago, and I, actually one of my earliest memories, I was probably about three years old, and I remember being at their house when they were all together working on these um, kind of beaded styrofoam Christmas ornaments. Oh, And uh, I just remember the table being like completely filled with components and, you know, beads and pearls and ribbons and pins and they tell me later that my my poor aunt must have had like just like a conniption trying to vacuum up all the components from at the time it would have been like early 70s shag green shag carpeting like i can only imagine her trying to accomplish that feat so much glitter on that shag carpet exact glitter and just just imagine everything just getting caught in it it just it just seems like such a fun thing to do i'm sure i was too young to be able to partake but my uncle used to uh, once they were finished making the ornaments they'd each maybe make like 10 or 12 they would my uncle would take them to like an apartment you know area a uh, big apartment building where they could like go try to sell them and they saw them for like 50 cents or a dollar you know something like that and then would they use the money for like Christmas gifts and stuff well that's what I asked him my my one cousin's like no I'm pretty sure my dad kept the money I was like what (laughs) it's so cruel I don't know if that's true. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's... just maybe all she remembers it.
0: That's funny. Yeah, I love that, that you know, those, those homemade things. Wow, well, I, I actually had a thought. I'm like, gosh, I wonder about a pin in the shag carpeting. Yikes. Exactly. It's worse that's than my, stepping on a Lego. Lego. <laughs> yeah, but I, I love that they kind of kept that tradition going all, all, all the way through the 70s. Yeah, I think that that's, that's something that I've noticed because I, I do. I love looking at Christmas trees. I love looking at old photos um, and, and also any time pre-COVID that I would go into people's houses when they'd have Christmas trees. I, I always kind of look for those handmade things like, you know, the the, the quilted things, the embroidered things. Um, in the 1930s also is when tinsel became very popular. So unfortunately, there was like mercury and things like that. And that's something important that I did read about vintage decor. So if you are hardcore, you want all true vintage, be very careful. Because a lot of it has lead or mercury or things that you really don't want in your home just because that was kind of the way things were manufactured back then. And vintage Christmas lights seem like massive, massive fire hazards.
1: The same uncle that maybe took all my, my cousin's spending money, um, he was a battalion chief on the Chicago Fire Department mm-hmm. and like he knew full well how dangerous those lights were and you know, combined with the fact that real trees would get really dry. They were just like a fire hazard waiting to happen. So because of that, they never, ever had a real tree. Like, so it's funny because a, a lot of people when I, as my friends, when I interviewed them for this podcast, a lot of them remember just like how flammable like certain components of Christmas were. Like you really had to be mindful about like turning, you know, the lights off and not, you know, being around when they were on and that sort of thing back in the day before like the safety codes were... In place.
0: Uh, so a quick note on Woolworths, uh, something that you brought up that I loved when we were talking about this is the Christmas pickle.
1: My friend Matthew, uh, I, I'd never heard of this tradition, but he said when he was a little boy, his mom would take uh, a Christmas pickle ornament and hide it somewhere inside the tree. And whichever one of like he or his siblings found it first got some type of special Christmas present. I just thought that was really charming, but I didn't I thought it was something that his family did. I didn't realize it was a thing. It's, I'd never heard of it before. But to, yeah, tell me tell me about the how that started.
0: Strangely enough, I have heard of Christmas pickle before. And and I've seen them on people's trees, and so I when you mentioned it, I was like, "Oh yeah, it's totally a thing." And so I I wasn't sure why or where it came from, uh, but I looked it up, and so Woolworth's, that 5 and dime store, they had glass ornaments Of fruits and vegetables, and weirdly enough, pickles. And so I went looking to figure out kind of where did the pickle thing start. I kind of assumed, I was like, seems like a weird German thing. (laughs) It kind of was. So there are two main sources. I found a website called whychristmas.com, which has a lot of cool facts about Christmas. And then everyone's favorite felon, Martha Stewart. Oh my God. uh, Also had a great article about it. The pickle, it's kind of like a, a game, right? Find that pickle, and then you would get an extra present. And so the thought was that it was a German tradition, but it turns out, like the poison poinsettias, that's just an urban legend. And the reason for it uh, came down to two things. Number one, there was a story, an origin story, about the American Civil War. And there was a soldier who was originally Bavarian, and he was a prisoner, and he was starving to death. And on Christmas, or he was begging as his one dying wish— for a pickle. Really? To remind him of his homeland. And he was given this pickle, and he ate it, and it revived him, and he somehow ended up living. It's it's a Christmas miracle. Christmas miracle. Story number two is a little darker. This goes back, you know, olden times. Uh, St. Nicholas. Apparently, there was an evil innkeeper. And he murdered these two young men who came to stay with him. And somehow St. Nicholas found them hidden, their dead bodies, in pickling barrels. Oh, and it was through his the magic of Christmas that St. Nicholas revived them. And now we honor their memories of them being resuscitated and brought back to life with a Christmas pickle. Wow. The reality is that it was probably some salesman who was like, I got too many pickle ornaments. I got to think of something. <laughs> uh, and Martha Stewart says that one of the ideas behind the pickle being the thing to to have to spy with your little eye is that it's green. And so it, it blends in with the the green boughs of the tree. And so that's mm-hmm. why it can be kind of a fun thing to try to hunt out. Probably not a Bavarian soldier revived back to life by eating a pickle or Saint Nick resuscitating dead children. So moving into the 1940s, war and depression made Christmas take on a whole new meaning. And it's kind of like it is today, right? So back in the 30s, people were really taking for granted all the time they got to spend with their families because, you know, World War I was in the rearview mirror. Things were really hard and people were spending a lot more time together and at home just because of the economic situation. When World War II started, you know, in 1941 with the bombing of Pearl Harbor, all of a sudden togetherness really got sharply focused again of how important it was. And I, I really feel like that's how 2021 is going to be or, you know, whenever we're able to gather again. Uh, I, I mean, this has been the most time I've gone without seeing my family and my boyfriend's family. It's this year.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a weird feeling. That's for sure.
0: Definitely. Because, you know, there were soldiers abroad and they didn't know when they were coming home and, um, you know, you're. You're hot off the depression, the Spanish flu of the 1920s. It's kind of reminiscent of today. Like so, you know, you really it started to create a situation where people realized how important family was and this time that they could all have together. And so the dogs, you know, the mutts and the terriers of the 1930s became very specifically focused on lots of imagery of Scottish terriers. So that little spunky black dog. And the thought there is that they were tough and spirited, much like the Americans. You know, we can get through anything. We got through one war. We'll get through World War II. Also, this happened to be the type of dog that Roosevelt had. And he was photographed with this dog all the time. And so it was really popular in the American kind of pop culture decor spectrum. The first dog. Yeah, the first dog. We have the pastels of the 1920s. The 1930s were starting to focus more on those traditional, what we know as traditional Christmas colors of red and green. And those were still really popular in the 1940s. But things got very patriotic. So as I looked through cards and tree decor, lots of stars and stripes and lots of red, white, and blue Christmas decor. People were extremely proud to be American. You also started to see paper going through shortages. So instead of people using the newsprint that they had used in the 1930s when they couldn't afford wrapping paper, there wasn't even wrapping paper to be had. So plastic was still pretty new in some ways. And you started to see cellophane used as wrapping paper. Not the most eco-friendly. I probably wouldn't use cellophane as wrapping paper today, but that's what they were doing in the 40s. Use what you have. Right, right. And then also because of the rise of plastic, this is when you start to see all those shaped, those red little cookie cutters in different shapes. And this is also... like when Rudolph gets really popular because that, that happy, that positive, you know, there was a big push in like we're going to persevere. We're going to get through things. And so that's when you start to see a lot of that kind of stuff in American Christmas culture.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: This is also when artificial trees and tabletop trees get really important, not because it was so expensive to buy Christmas trees necessarily, but because there was literally no trees there were not all the men were off fighting overseas so trees were in short supply because they didn't have people planting the trees cutting the trees all that whole tree economy kind of fell apart with so many people being abroad fighting this war
1: wow Yeah, I
0: never even thought about it. It's
1: so interesting how war affects so many different things that you couldn't possibly imagine.
0: Exactly, exactly. And then artificial trees started getting really popular, partially because what they were able to do is they were able to modify the machine that made toilet bowl brushes. Oh, my God. To make artificial Christmas trees. That's crazy. That's exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And another weird effect of World War II was that so many of the ornaments were from Japan and Germany that people had been collecting all these years. So their family, you know, buying a couple of ornaments per year to decorate the tree. If they were made in Japan or Germany during World War II, families didn't hang those ornaments. They just left them in the attic, left them in the box for the year. Yeah, they didn't want to have to even think about it. Exactly. So this is when the one major domestic player in the United States, Shiny Bright, really gets their moment they could not keep up with the demand of making ornaments uh, because people just wanted them so much but it wasn't necessarily an issue of making the glass ornaments that was fine that was all kind of automated and whatnot but the issue was they couldn't keep up painting them so they had blank ornaments that were going out and they were trying to figure out what to do next and so they got really creative and this is when you see still popular to this day the bands of color on the ornaments like striped ornaments
1: Oh. So
0: it wasn't a styled choice. It was an economic choice to have striped ornaments. Because they wouldn't want to waste all their color on one... Solid object? Exactly. The banding helped the paint go further. Interesting. So clever. I know. I know. Also, this is one of my favorite Christmas ornaments. Uh, My boyfriend's parents have these. I've had a lot of friends have them on their trees. I feel like they're still really popular in the Midwest, or a lot of Midwestern people have them. This is when you start to see the bubbler lights. Yes. Yeah. Did you have those growing up? I did.
1: Yeah, I did, um, but they were kind of, they were more of a modern take. Like I feel like a safer version. <laughs> yeah, you uh, just explain what the bubbler lights are. I should mention, like, instead of doing online research for this particular broadcast or for this ep-
0: for broadcast, we're on radio. <laughs> for this <person>. particular broadcast <laughs> brought to you by Rachel and Deborah,
1: my friend Deborah, who's a little bit older than I am, talks about being a little girl and how she was just absolutely mesmerized by these bubbling lights they're basically like a there's some kind of liquid probably like really toxic liquid by you know today's standards but um you know you plug it in and they just literally the liquid bubbles up into like the stem of you know like a sort of an art fake looking candle it just seemed like magic to her she loved the fact that it was moving she couldn't believe like how is that moving you know looking at something from the eyes of a child and she loved the way the light reflected off the shiny light bulbs and it's just sort of a a memory that was kind of stuck in her head but like yeah de- but definitely she knew that it was like sort of flammable i think i i think our parents must have like scared us when when we were kids Is you can't touch anything and you, you know everything's you know gonna catch on fire that was another thing uh, when i was talking to all these people mm-hmm. about like a memorable christmas ornament or decoration is they all, like, almost all of them said, like, you cannot, you have to look from a distance, you have to, you know, admire it from afar, but you can't touch it. It's kind of like with once, you know, your grandmother had her tree up, like, there was, she, there was no touching, it I'm sure. Like, I think parents just didn't trust
0: us with these fragile, beautiful, delicate pieces. Well, right. I mean, it's just everything's glass. One of the things that I came up with in my research was that the bubbler lights that started appearing in the 40s were an answer to real candles, which people were putting on trees. And growing up, I grew up near a German family. They were from Germany. And they did do the actual candles on the tree. And I remember going over with my mom. My mom was really freaked out by the whole thing. So we go over to their house and the tree is just lit up with all these real candles. You know, there's it all hanging out by the tree and at some point one of the and i can't remember if it was a live tree or an artificial tree but one of the candles kind of tipped and started part of the tree on fire oh my goodness and thankfully the the dad like he very nonchalantly like just kind of reached over and like grabbed the candle and like waved the whole thing out but it was uh it was pretty scary god that just seems a little too too dangerous to me. Yeah, it was it was pretty precarious, but um, those bubbler lights were a safe alternative, and they remained kind of in fashion and like all the way through the fifties. What you would also see under the tree, so you know, earlier years having like, piles of. of Packages and, and gifts were not as popular under the tree, but that did start to happen kind of in the 40s. And you would also see um, instead of ribbons uh, and and you know paper was kind of in short supply, so people would decorate the package with what they were calling package tie-ons, crafts that were made for the purpose of zhuzhing up the package itself. But then you said they would ultimately end up as an ornament later on? So they were sort of multi-purpose and could have been used as an ornament later on. Very clever. In Susan Wagoner's book, where she has the crafts, there is this gorgeous cellophane wreath that she uh, made that, that is very reminiscent of what you would have seen in the 40s. You know, a real wreath might not have been an option with the tree industry being what it was. And so people would get creative. And she's got this really beautiful bright red cellophane wreath.
1: Oh, that sounds pretty.
0: As we kind of head into the 1950s, and this is where I think a lot of the really recognizable when we think vintage Christmas stuff comes from, I would say like the 50s, 60s, and 70s is where when you see like a retro Christmas look, like this is what you're predominantly seeing. Right. The biggest changes that you really see is that After World War II, there were uh, a huge boom in housing. So you have the soldiers coming back from the war. People are starting to leave cities a little bit more. And so you have all these houses being built. And the new housing really drove the trends in Christmas decorating. So there were less places to hang stockings. Like a lot of the new homes didn't have the fireplace in the way that an older home would, like the hearth and all that. And so you see an extreme focus starting to be put back on trees. So full-size trees, very highly decorated. You also see the poinsettias, they finally beat their bad rap. So people finally understand that uh, they aren't, your kid's not going to die by ingesting some poinsettia milk or whatever comes out of those leaves. (laughs) Uh, Thanks, Bob Hope. That was part of, part of his doing is that he had poinsettias on his show. And so they were so gorgeous and, and so awesome looking that people wanted them for their own homes it's funny how something like that affects pop culture we'll get to some more pop culture that that killed certain christmas trends here in a moment okay uh, but red and greens uh are pretty firmly in the christmas decor but you also start to see the pastels making a bit of a comeback and part of the reason was elvis's pink cadillac interesting elvis really brought the the pink and and it's interesting because there's a bit of a divergence at this point when you have the traditional kind of Christmas, and then you have this newer kind of Christmas taking hold. Uh, you also start to see outdoor decor. So outdoor lights, those plastic figurines, like the big, you know, Frosty the Snowman, reindeer, things like that. Mm-hmm. Typical 1950s Christmas tree. It is going to be tons of ball ornaments and tons of lights. And that's, to me, that
1: that's how it sort of remained until like even the 70s when I was a kid. That's how I think of it.
0: Yeah, I think that those 1950s trends really – something interesting that I also found about Christmas decor in general is that – Kind of whoever is the eldest member of the household really almost dictates whatever Christmas looks like. So, whatever era they came of age in, that's what you're going to see. That's so true. A younger couple might trend more towards this like pink and silver, whereas an older couple might have more of the green and red, or an older household, maybe not necessarily a couple, but you know, if you're visiting a grandparent or something like that, it's really whenever. They kind of got their first home or taste of Christmas. That's what you're going to start seeing. It makes perfect sense. And this is also the genesis for this podcast was my newfound obsession with aluminum Christmas trees. I had seen them before. I was familiar with them. In fact, I found a photo of my own grandmother, my maternal grandmother, classic Christmas photo. She's in her beautiful dress, her fur, standing in front of a silver Christmas tree And it didn't really occur to me what exactly they were, like, that it was not just a painted silver Christmas tree, it was actually made out of aluminum. Wow. These aluminum Christmas trees are pretty fascinating. This whole aluminum Christmas tree thing really sent me down a path of, of discovery. And I found this awesome article uh, written by a woman named Kate Silver, which is hilarious to me because Christmas trees that are made out of aluminum are silver, <laughs> and her name's Kate Silver. So the article appeared in the Washington Post in December of 2019 as the aluminum Christmas tree, even through 2020, is having a major moment again. Kate. Silver has a family connection to aluminum Christmas trees. They're originally manufactured by the Aluminum Specialty Company in Wisconsin. Even though they still are beloved today, they were actually only manufactured for 12 years back then. Oh, interesting. Mm So in 1958, one of Kate Silver's family members saw, I believe it was at a library, a, a silver Christmas tree. And it was like a big display Christmas tree and really loved the idea. But the issue was that Those trees, because they were metal, so, you know, you kind of think about the real Christmas tree, how it's – the branches are, like, tied up, right, so you can fit it in your car or on your car. Sure. But a metal tree isn't pliable like that. And so the issue was, okay, these trees are stunning and eye-catching, and there's definitely a market for them, an in-home market for these Christmas trees, but how the heck is somebody going to get this thing home? And so over the course of 1958 to 1959, it was really – engineered reverse engineered until it was figured out that you could make a pole right this this aluminum pole and then it would have holes that would then you would then put these branches in with with all the kind of faux pine looking stuff on them so it was able to then really easily be packaged up in a box and it made it an extremely popular choice for quite a festive tree. Well, it's
1: funny because so the aluminum tree is before my time period. You know, we never we had a plastic tree when I was growing up. But I asked one of my cousins, Carrie, who they definitely my aunt and uncle had one of those trees until probably well into the 70s. You know, to me it's like so charming and it's so nostalgic. I'm like, "Did you love it? Did you love having an aluminum tree?" And she's like no, actually, I, I didn't like it at all and because apparently when you'd go to put them together, the aluminum was sharp. Oh, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. She remembers being a little kid and like, basically been cut like on her her hands and her arms as she's like building the tree with her sisters like to the point of blood like it was like kind of a dangerous thing so I asked her I'm like but you must like them now and she's like no actually I don't so it's like it sort of scarred her I mean they're beautiful but like
0: I guess you have to be real careful when you're putting them together so these trees were, were getting wildly popular I mean they sold out and they were called the evergleam so if you're looking up more information on the tree it's called the evergleam And they were actually sold in multiple colors, the most popular being the silver. And there was a color wheel that would go underneath it uh, that would you there's a light and like these colors and that would kind of project colors up onto to the Evergleam tree. If you can find an original, good for you, especially if you can find an original that still has the color wheel. But I have been seeing reproductions be made. I really wanted to to dig really deep into these trees. I mean, you can find a lot of information, but I I found one book. So these trees remained extremely popular. There were imitations until One fateful year, 1965, Charlie Brown killed the Evergleam.
1: Dun, 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 dun. I know.
0: So uh, I'm going to be honest. I maybe have seen it once, once again jew on christmas i don't know i always like the those like claymation type christmas movies right but in a charlie brown christmas there was a a line about wanting to get a big pink one of these aluminum christmas trees and charlie ends up with that little kind of sad actual christmas tree so it was largely at that point that the shift happened where the aluminum christmas tree almost got seen as the commercialization of christmas oh wow and so people rejected the aluminum tree hard. So poor Evergleam uh, and its competitor knockoffs very quickly declined in popularity. Plus, you know, uh, an artificial tree, you only have to buy it once. At that point, they kind of saturated the market. Then the Charlie Brown Christmas special turned public opinion away from these really non-traditional Christmas trees. By 1971, production on the Evergleam ceased because there just wasn't enough demand. Aww. But at, at the same time, like I'm sure the tree farmers... <laughs> Got a boost in sales because of it. Yeah, yeah. I didn't really find anything specific in my research about that, but I would imagine that people started seeking out other alternatives. So the Evergleam and Aluminum Christmas Trees, thankfully, because of the vintage community, uh, got really popular again in 2004. There was a book called Seasons Gleaming, The Art of the Aluminum Christmas Tree. And I really wanted to try to find this book uh, but they didn't have it at my local library and it was over $100 on Amazon so its secrets will remain uh, within the book. Unless somebody gives it to you and you
1: find it in a thrift store.
0: Yeah, I mean, keep an eye out for it. There's another book too called The Wonderful World of Evergleam that was written by one of the guys who originally made it uh, and that is unfortunately unavailable on Amazon and I, I couldn't find it anywhere else either. Uh, so there's lots of research to be had on these trees which is really cool. So, um, yeah, the aluminum Christmas tree and I love that all the way into into the 70s, you had a family member with one. Yeah, I mean, whether she was happy about it or not, yeah. <laughs> Evergleam kind of happened right at the end, the tail end of the 50s. And then into the 1960s, it's no surprise that aqua, silver, pink, these kind of like funky colors really became an important part of the overall Christmas landscape. And that divide between traditional Christmas and that minimalist, cool, new look really started to branch out. So depending on when your house was built, depending on when you moved into that house, that really dictated your Christmas decision. Um, So I, I love that there's this like old school, new school thing happening. And this is also when you start seeing flocking on everything. So the idea of faux snow has been popular, you know, all the way back into the 1800s. But something happened in the 60s and people were flock happy. And that's another reason I got so interested in vintage Christmas is I've been seeing all these vintage Instagram people with their flocked Christmas trees. I had never even heard that word with regard to Christmas definitely
1: I have and and I don't know if this is a Los Angeles thing because I don't ever remember seeing these in Chicago but this year I've seen these I mean really brightly colored flocked trees an an actual tree but they flock it with like bright orange or bright yellow I saw a red one I saw really pretty blue that would be actually perfect for a cub's blue if you oh okay wow that's a bright blue It's so bright, but I'm thinking maybe it's for Dodger blue. I don't know. But I even saw a black, like, so picture solid black. You you can see barely any of the, the live tree underneath it. So it's like a solid black tree. And it's just I'm just thinking, is this an L.A. thing? Is this a South L.A. thing where I live? Or like I'm just really curious to see if this is something else that's going on
0: in other cities, because this is the first time I've ever seen. I kind of love the idea of just an all black tree. Like I I almost want to get a black tree, put black tinsel, all black bulb ornaments on it. Like that's the most interested I think I've ever been in owning a Christmas tree. It would go really well with my home decor. <laughs> well, maybe that's what people are thinking. I don't know. It's it's just like a little shocking to see at first, but it's just different it's different than what I'm used to. Yeah, one of one of the people that I follow on Instagram, she got a, a pink flocked tree. And so when I she kept saying flocked tree, and in my mind I'm thinking like flock, like birds, like gathering. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, what if a flocked tree is like a really sparse looking Christmas tree that you then have to like tie or glue more branches onto, like flocking your tree is making it fuller. I don't know. This is where my brain went. And obviously a quick Google showed me that I was incorrect with what I thought a flocked tree was, but it's a good guess. It's a solid guess. Thank you for, for my solid guess. So yeah. And then, you know, the 1960s that like all the funky stuff, I I posted a picture of this um, weird pink palm frond Christmas tree that I saw online yeah, you were trying to you were trying to describe it to me, and I
1: honestly could not picture it until I saw that picture. I didn't even reckon it was the same thing that you were describing, but
0: like it almost looks like bird wings, or I don't know. It's it's cute though. They took these palm fronds, and they made these fake faux palm fronds out of pink foam, and then placed them in such a way on a pole that it looks like the shape of a Christmas tree. And there's like really ostentatious other decoration going on on the tree. First, I thought maybe Florida. But then uh, if you look really closely, the, the rest of this photograph, it's on our Instagram at Very Vintage Podcast. And it is just wild. Like they have this gorgeous peacock above the above the fireplace. It's probably there all year round. Awesome pendant lights. And then in their fireplace, they've got like a, an ornamental fireplace cover that's cacti. So at first I thought Florida, but then I looked at it a little closer and I'm like, oh, maybe this is Nevada or Arizona. Either way, if you somehow recognize the people in the photo, please tell me where they're from and what their deal is because <laughs> I, I loved it. We need a backstory. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and I've been able to also find a lot of really great vintage photos of my maternal family um, around Christmas time that I will also put on our our instagram yeah i think that that's one reason why i wanted to have this conversation with you deborah is that i other than showing up with christmas kind of ready to go and it was more it was more like family time than it was christmas time for us it just that that was kind of the the way our family approached christmas because not being christian at all like we didn't go to mass together or anything um it was just more of like a togetherness but i would love to hear more about your very vintage christmas memories So for this particular episode, I decided instead of doing online research,
1: I would just talk to my friends and family and try to get... Gets them sort of to jog their memories a little bit. And I asked them if they had a favorite Christmas decoration or a Christmas ornament or maybe something that was meaningful to them. And it it actually turned out to be such a great um, conversation starter. It gets people to think about things that maybe they haven't thought about in a really long time. And I highly recommend asking people, whether you know them well or not, to share like a favorite Christmas ornament or memory. Love that. In talking to my friends and asking them if they they had you know a favorite ornament or decoration i got a lot of really great responses um
0: so my friend nina oh is this nina from chic
1: yes from charming hats in chicago that's a group of hat ladies that well, we go once a month and have a, a nice hat, hat lady dinner, and we all wear hats.
0: Just a little aside on that, Deborah introduced me to them before she left for L.A., and they are so fun and so welcoming. And, it, and pre-COVID, uh, I went to a few of the dinners, and it's just really fun to get to dress up and it's like a whole gaggle of, of gals with our fun headwear on and we just descend on a restaurant in Chicago and they sometimes <laughs> don't even know what to do with us. <laughs> I think they're mostly delighted. Sometimes
1: the, the people in the restaurant are perplexed but mostly delighted when they look out and see a sea of hats in a restaurant. Yeah so, so Nina, she actually, she's a very sentimental person and so she got pretty emotional when I asked her the question because her answer was that she puts probably 20 or, or more of her her mother's Christmas ornaments on her current tree and her mother's been passed for some years now and and for Nina it's it's kind of bittersweet because it's obviously it's a reminder that her mom is passed but at the same time it kind of conjures up good memories from past Christmases and and just talking to me about it, it it's kind of like it occurred to her for maybe the first time that the ornaments all represent different time periods in okay. her life and One of them, uh, probably the oldest one dating back to 1958, which, you know, to me, like that's truly vintage. Yeah, yeah. And her telling me that and and some of the other people talking about special ornaments that have the date on it, I realize if you're going to give an ornament, a Christmas ornament for a present, it's like so important to put the year on it because it it just gives such a sense of history when you look back to that, you know, and, and I don't know, it just makes it so much more special that way to me.
0: Oh, I love that. Yeah. You know, that this kind of reminds me, um, when, when there's this new school, old school fight over Christmas and then I think you and I are both like very nostalgic people, so we love the the history, the memory, like all the sentimentality tied up with it. But it kinda reminds me of on Fraser, how Frasier and Martin were fighting about uh, how Fraser wanted this designer Christmas and, and <laughs> Marty had all these different traditions. And, uh, you know, it's kind of funny to see that play out in pop culture.
1: Yeah, Rachel and I are both, um, we were delighted to find out that we're both uh, big Frasier fans. So,
0: yes. <laughs> well, and we knew each other for like seven or eight
1: years before a long time. we ever
0: <laughs> figured out how obsessed we both were with Fraser. It was just like one more delightful layer into our friendship.
1: No, it's true. To me, you're either a friends person or you're a Frasier person. Oh, Fraser all the way. All the way.
0: <laughs> i'm telling you
1: i didn't i actually didn't even watch friends i'm like i don't even think i've seen an entire episode of friends which nobody can believe but it's true
0: uh, yeah i feel like i've seen the same five episodes over and over again like why do i always end up with these same few episodes i mean maybe i should try i should probably try to watch it nah. <laughs> no, listen <laughs> yeah. cheers is all on netflix watch cheers instead no yeah that's what started
1: it all So when I asked my friend Ashley about her favorite ornaments, she said there were a hand painted ceramic doll and clown painted by a woman named Annette in her town of Warrensburg, Missouri. So to me, the really cute part of this story is her current significant other also has ornaments painted by this same woman because they were grew up in the same town. So apparently this woman would make these ornaments and sell them from her house, almost like, you know, the true cottage industry. Like these Mm -hmm. are the days before Etsy and that sort of thing. But I just thought like, it's so sweet. What a sweet, charming thought. Like she must have made countless warm memories to people in that town or kind of nearby towns. And I I asked if she was still alive. Apparently she's not, because I was actually thinking it'd be nice to reach out to her.
0: Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and totally on the flip side of that, I, you know, you've got all these beautiful, like, I feel like there's been such a return to the homemade stuff, especially this year with the focus on buy local and all that. Um, most of my Christmas memories are surrounded by my time working at the mall. I worked at the Fox Valley Mall. I actually did two jobs. So I worked at a department store and a smaller store. In between my shifts, they made you work those crazy long shifts during Christmas. I would quickly change and, like, run over to the next store. Uh, and I think I was probably violating some sort of labor laws, like working I'm 12, sure. 15, 16 hours. <laughs> I still cannot really listen to christmas music because there's only so many songs and when you're working for 16 plus hours like you're just hearing the same eight songs over and over again oh but no so you're soured on it i just had this this big consumer uh, view of christmas and one store that was always packed at the mall around this time was hallmark because of their keepsake ornaments and so i looked into it a little bit and starting in 1973 Hallmark started doing these ornaments. And I know that there are people that are absolutely diligent about buying the keepsake ornaments every year. They still do them, like, to this day. Yes.
1: I have one myself, actually. One that came out in early 90s, probably, like, 91, 92. Mm-hmm. And it's um, – Here's a nerd alert, by the way. I'm a Star Trek fan. I didn't know that. Little known Deborah fact. I had this, uh, it was the shuttlecraft Galileo. It would have been the shuttlecraft that came from the Enterprise from Star Trek. (laughs) And then it's awesome because it's Mr. Spock says, shuttlecraft to Enterprise, shuttlecraft to Enterprise, Spock here. Happy holidays. Live long and prosper. So it was a talking ornament. Yes. I couldn't get through it with a straight face. No, he <laughs> talked. He talked, and it lit up. No, it's awesome. Like you just plug it into the Christmas lights, and uh, do you still have it? Oh yes, I'm keeping that for all eternity. Yeah, it exists. It's it's packed in. It's in my storage unit in Chicago. But yeah, it's it's safe. Yeah, no, I used to bring it to different people's houses, like to different friends' houses, <laughs> as I went to you know for Christmas entertaining. <laughs> I bring it, bring it around, and plug it into other people's trees.
0: That's so funny. Well, I know that you told me a little bit about some of your friend traditions with Christmas, like, uh, you know, as as a young adult. Now,
1: one of my fondest Christmas decoration memories revolves around a plush Santa Mm. doll, It came out probably in the early 2000s, um, and at the time, I was part of this group of friends that would gather on Christmas Eve Eve, the 23rd of December, and uh, my friend Ed gave me this very odd-looking Santa doll that was, he's basically wearing a pair of boxer shorts and a Santa hat. So imagine Santa's nipples are fully
0: exposed. It's truly bizarre. You sent me a picture of this. And I didn't know what to expect, but it's it's almost shocking, like how... <laughs> no, it's obscene. He's
1: basically like a big, fat, obscene Santa. And I, I couldn't understand why Ed was giving me such a grotesque present until I realized that Santa talked to when you squeezed his big, fat <laughs> stomach. But he doesn't say what you would expect a Santa to say. So what did Santa say? I mean, he basically... <laughs> Hold on, let me. I, like I think you can't this. even
0: get through this without laughing.
1: Because it's, it's so ridiculous, and it put it. I mean, we could. We got so many good laughs out of this. It was unbelievable. So at first, I was like, "Why is he giving me this present?" It goes from that to like just. It's like now nah, our favorite thing in the world. <laughs> he says things like, "Screw the milk and cookies. Where's the whiskey?" Oh goodness, I know. And then he he says. Squeeze me any harder, I'll drop a Yule log. And then at the very, and then to cap it off at the end, he has the most horrendous fart. And he says, "Excuse me," but like with manners, like he's very crass, But he says, the, "Excuse me." Oh, excuse <laughs> with, me. With like subtlety and manners. <laughs> it's just it's ridiculous and hysterical. Oh my goodness, where where is um inappropriate santa now inappropriate santa is still with ed and it's f- it's so funny and it's so sweet because i, I reached out to him when we we knew we were going to be doing this podcast because i was going to try to get like a sound bite of it and uh and he said that's kind of funny that you should ask ever because i just the other day i was asking my sister for your address because he was going to send it to me so here i am thinking about this like pimped out santa and and ed's going to send it to me it's almost like the The gift of the Magi in a weird way. Oh,
0: you know, I always found that story super depressing. It is, but it's, I mean, it's beautiful, though, at the same time. Right, like, doesn't, doesn't, she cuts off her hair to
1: sell to, what did she buy him? So she, she cuts off her hair to buy him a, a watch chain. Oh, right. And he sells his watch, his, like, pocket watch, to buy her like either a brush or a hair barrette. But it's basically something to do with her hair. So she doesn't have the hair and he doesn't have the watch. And here they are, you know. Like I know it's supposed to be sweet,
0: but to me, I'm like, this is a couple that doesn't communicate well.
1: <laughs> yeah, but it's, you know, I think that was before the days of communication in, in, within a marriage. Listen, like we're all about vintage style, not vintage values, so. Yeah, that's true. It's supposed to be. It's basically the bottom line is it's the thought that counts. It's the gesture that that counts. And so I know that obvi- obviously Christmas is a is, you know started out a religious holiday, or maybe is it pagan? Probably pagan. But um, but to a lot of people, it, it has a really strong religious significance. Um, my friend Chris and his sister were each given a religious themed ornament in the year that they were each born. And what's sweet about it is he remembers how exciting it was for him every year. To have this old, really fragile ornament that only he was allowed to hang. So that's such a sweet thought. Like his parents, you know, kind of gave him that moment. You know, it's it's sweet how parents can think of clever ways to make their kids feel special. So I asked my friend Nancy if she had a favorite decoration or ornament. Mm -hmm. And she did. It's a ceramic church that would have been part of her mother's village scene. I don't know if you're aware of this, but like the Christmas village was like a really big deal. Like even under my Christmas tree, we would have had like little teeny tiny houses and little shops, like little storefronts. And, you know, underneath my tree, I even made a. as a little girl, I took a little mirror, just a square mirror, and I put like these little ice skating figurines on Aww, them. That's really sweet. Yeah. So the village was a big deal. So in for Nancy, this church was like the major part of like sort of the glue that held the, the village together. Mm-hmm. She's actually this year driving down to Kentucky to see her oldest son and she's going to be sort of passing it down to him and uh, he has a son so she kind of wants his new family to enjoy it and she's kind of looking forward to sort of create future vintage ornaments for her grandson which I thought was a really sweet idea.
0: This reminds me of a friend that I have uh, was talking about Christmas villages and how she is really into hers and all that and one of her neighbors an older woman was moving and downsizing and was bringing all these boxes of Christmas stuff to the curb to throw out her husband got to talking to this neighbor and she kind of casually mentioned that yeah none of her kids wanted all these christmas decorations and she was moving to a considerably smaller place and the two of them are are this couple they are absolutely like christmas freaks like they love all things christmas and they also are like listen no shame in our game like we'll take the stuff and it kind of like bummed me out a little bit Like, like i said i'm a really sentimental person And I I, I do regret a little bit not taking more of my grandmother's Christmas stuff when she moved to a smaller home and then ultimately passed away. But I have no frame of reference for decorating for Christmas. I think it might make me a little sad to have my grandmother's stuff because it would remind me and make me miss her. But then on the other hand, like I want to have it to remind me. So I don't know. Like Christmas can be, I think, a tricky time for people. Oh, without a doubt. It's it's literally
1: bittersweet. Mm -hmm. I think what it does to me, like certain holidays... Remind me of past holidays, or it kind of reminds you of like what you were doing last year, or you know, two years ago Christmas. you know, it's sort of like a marker. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people, it's it just reminds them of maybe times that were good that are no longer there. or I actually talked to a, a friend of mine. And I asked him if he had a special memory or, you know, ornament, and he actually was upset that he felt like his, his childhood was such that he couldn't remember, like a, a good, he didn't have a good memory associated with Christmas, which is sad, but it's, I, I can relate to that, you know, I, and I think a lot of people can relate to that. And it's one of those times where, you, you know, you kind of think you're supposed to be happy, like the world is telling you, this is a joyous time, and this and that, but if you're not quite at that, Point. It's
0: you know, it's it can make you sad. I think that this year especially is going to be really tough for people. So we've heard about all your friends and family and their Christmas memories, their favorite ornament or decoration. Do you have a favorite Christmas decoration? I know you talked about your Spock and your Fat Santa.
1: I do. It's a plaster wall angel. I painted it when I was five years old. It's um maybe isn't the happiest story, but it's a really meaningful one to me. You see, that was the year that my older sister died. My mom brought me the unpainted angel, I think in the attempt to help me understand the loss. And the angel was intended to represent my sister now being in angel form. So I can remember my mom sat down next to me as I painted it. And I remember wanting to do a really good job because I knew how important it would be and um, for years to come we would always hang that hang it on the wall kind of carefully it was my sort of job to hang it on the wall I don't know to me it was just a really nice way to feel like my sister was watching over us
0: Mm, that's so sweet thank you for sharing that you're welcome it's really kind of the first time that I've talked about something like that in public yeah yeah I mean I know that we've had some conversations and I appreciate you sharing To kind of end things on a little bit more of an upbeat note. Yes, we need upbeat. We also found, yeah, we found something that we have in common. I texted you a picture earlier today and you immediately knew what it was. Do you want to describe it first for our listeners and see if any of you guess what it is before we tell you what it is? Okay. (laughs) Now let me look at the picture again. Yeah. This is probably something you never thought that you would have to describe. No,
1: probably not. Well, it's hilarious because the instant. You, so Rachel asked me, "Does this mean anything to you?" It's a, it's an image of uh, a flat cookie that is mostly shortbread and then has a swirl of like a darker, like chocolate shortbread, and then like it's edged, it's rimmed in like pink, you know, like uh, like a pink dough around the edge, dye or something. Yeah. yeah,
0: exactly. So of course I'm like, well, yeah, that's a Maurice Linnell pinwheel. Talk about a Midwestern Christmas memory. I would eat those cookies until I felt sick. Like, doesn't matter, Christian, Jew, something else. If you're from the Chicagoland area, if you're from the Midwest, you know the Linells cookies. Uh, the history on it is I found this really great website. It is uh, Lifetime Chicago. And the article was by a woman named Carol Clem. It just came out this year. She talks about this iconic Chicago cookie Brand. So in 1920, these two brothers and a friend came from Sweden to Chicago and they started Linell's. and they would use kind of the old school cooking techniques and ingredients and things like that. And after several name changes, they eventually became the Maurice Linnell Cookie Company. And it's been a Chicago tradition. So you got some memories of actually going to their location on Harlem Avenue in Norwich.
1: Oh, yeah. Because um, they had like a little, you know, s- storefront. And mm-hmm. I mean, like, it's, it feels like everybody went there. You know, I, I remember um, I, my family out in California at the time, whenever I traveled to to see them they always wanted me to bring Maurice Linnell um and they also sold like broken cookies too at like a discounted rate so like a lot of people would just go yeah just get the broken cookies they taste the same they just don't look as pretty but like heck yeah big savings though yeah so that was a big deal to a lot of people it's funny once they left from Harlem Avenue I thought they were gone forever but I didn't realize that they have where are these there's like two stores somewhere or tell me of the situation now
0: Yeah. So the situation is that the top selling cookies are our beloved pinwheels. And I don't know. I think the pink drew them to me as a kid. Like I was a huge tomboy, but deep down inside, I was a glittery disco diva (laughs) who loved pink and sparkles. And so that cookie was kind of like my little salvation of my hot pink. Like I didn't have to be that tough tomboy. (laughs) So the other really popular one were the raspberry jelly swirls. And I hate jelly, so those were always a no-go for me. And then these ones, I'm pretty sure these were my mom's favorite, were the almanettes. Yes. So I know a lot of people know the Linnell almanette. And that logo, that little kid in the cookie jar with his tongue out, so iconic. Yes, I can still see it. Yeah, exactly. It's one of those things that's like, you know, like scent memories. Like this one just brings it back. We were also a Pepperidge Farm family, but... There's something about the Linnell's cookie tin. In 2007, the business started struggling and was sold, but it still lives on today. So if you want kind of the original tins and stuff, you can go on Etsy and find them. Uh, however, the cookies still exist. If you go to chicagocookiestore.com, you can still get a lot of the Maurice Linell cookies. This company in 2001 started distributing Chicagoland items, uh, really focusing on old time Chicago stuff. The article from Life. Time Chicago said 2007. This website, their actual website says in 2009, Maurice Linnell asked us about opening a store and it took a full year to get it set up. So they did reopen November 28th of 2010. Still on in Norwich, now on Cumberland. And you can not only get the Maurice Linnell cookies, but this company has done an amazing job really saving a lot of classic Chicagoland brands. So they've got Fannie Mae. Um, they have Okie Doke popcorn, which I did not realize was somehow affiliated here. Do you know what I'm talking about? The cheese, the bright orange cheese popcorn? Yes, but I didn't know they were a Chicago thing. Oh, man. Well, I didn't either. But my, my dad has always been obsessed with it. And it wasn't until I went to college in California and I was trying to talk about it with people that I didn't know that Okie Doke popcorn and Jay's Chips – we're local just to the Midwest. I knew about Jays, that's for sure,
1: because again, my family in Los Angeles always wanted to be, it was those were the two things. They would want they'd ask for Jays and for Maurice Linell, so I'd have to pack
0: my suitcase with those items.: That's so funny. And yeah, I had no awareness because I'd only ever lived in Illinois that, that these brands didn't exist outside. My big memory, you know, I, we definitely had the tins with the little crinkle paper in there, but the cookie tub of the Maurice Linelle, you know, the plastic tub yes. with the handle. It was um, it was a really fun. I'd kind of forgotten about it now that I don't, I don't, I don't do dairy. Uh, so Maurice Linnell Pepperidge Farm, that's all kind of off the table for me. It was a really fun thing seeing that article pop up, and then immediately those cookies, the taste, the plastic tubs, the kid with his tongue sticking out. I just, <laughs> I loved it. There's there's something so comforting and nostalgic. Oh, big time.
1: Imagine going into the the store and smelling because they baked them there too. So it just mm. like, f- filled the, the air. I mean, like the, the factory was like attached to the storefront, as I recall.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know that I ever went to the, the store itself, but we certainly, whether it was my family or family friends, those cookies were definitely around. Yeah. Ask your dad
1: if he went. I'd be curious.
0: Yeah, that's, you know, it's funny. I just had that thought because my dad did live in Chicago prior to, to moving out of state and that's when he and my mom met. In, uh, in Ohio and then kind of traveled around the Midwest before settling back in Illinois. So I will definitely have to check in and then I will check back about all of that. We hope you enjoyed our Christmas episode. We had a lot of fun researching and we look forward to you guys sharing your Christmas memories with us. Our podcast grows and reaches more listeners when you review us. So if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you get your podcast, go ahead and drop us a review. Deborah, when you are not busy interviewing all your family and friends about their favorite Christmas memories or going down a rabbit hole about Midwestern cookies, where can we find you?
1: You can find me at millineryetc.com or Facebook, MillineryETC
0: as well. And on Instagram, you can find me at Debra Shirley 1111. You can find me, Rachel, uh, manning our Very Vintage Podcast at Very Vintage Podcast Instagram. We also have our podcasts available on our website, Very Vintage podcast.com we've got a contact us feature so if you've got some feedback you'd like to let us know please drop it there we are so appreciative for everything you guys have done so far we've just gotten such an amazing reception and we're excited to keep sharing with you all things very vintage thanks for listening